All right. How's everybody doing? A little confused? A little confused about what we're up to here today? You should be. Okay. 3rd of April, 12 days to 15th. Tax time, right? It's, it's the most wonderful time. Well, maybe not of the year. Tax time. Enough of that. Uh, as uh, E advertised, we are beginning a new series today called uh, Beautiful Design. We're going to talk about um, how God created us, both male and female, how he's wired us, how he's, uh, and how we're to function based on how he has wired us and designed us. Uh, we're going to have to start back at the beginning. Is, uh, is Paul out there? We've got a two-point message again today. First half is just trying to deal with what's going on confusion-wise, and the second half is to lay a foundation that will tarry us in the next week and the weeks after uh, in terms of how to look at this whole, whole thing. Uh, you got a good dose of the confusion that exists in our world uh, with the Lady Gaga song the band just did. Uh, you'll understand, I think, by the time we finish today why we took the risk to, to play that particular song as our special. Um, so let me pray for us because we're going to really need a God to be present to shape our thinking and our hearts as we go through this series. God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for these people that have come. Thank you that you've given us minds to understand and, and hearts uh, geared towards you, if we are Christians, to understand what it is you have to say for us. We uh, acknowledge that it's easy to drift. It's easy to get caught up in what's going on all around us and maybe lose sight of what it is that your best is for us. So we pray that you would descend on this place, hover, uh, Give us openness, give us hearts to hear that we might actually uh, experience you today and be changed by, by that experience. Um, in Christ's name, amen. Um, I remember taking classes at CIA early on back in the 70s. Um, that, and the training was basically, you know, how are we all going to get along in the workplace, that kind of stuff. And I remember um, the training was basically recognizing that men and women are, are different, not just physically, but in kind of how they're wired, how they approach things. Uh, and uh, I, I, mean, I don't know, maybe it was under pressure from feminism. Uh, by the way, if you think I'm totally anti-feminism, I'm not. Feminism has uh, got some good stuff going for it, like, like when feminists argue for equal pay, for equal work. They, they actually rightly dis, uh, protest discrimination and glass ceilings where women are treated as less than and not as good as. Uh, for example, I don't know if you've been reading the paper this past week, maybe in the sports section. Uh, I get it why several elite members of the U.S. women's soccer team have filed a class action equal employment opportunity uh, suit against the U.S. Soccer Federation. Somebody's shaking their head. You know, you've heard this. The, the women, it turns out, in terms of soccer, are far more decorated, uh, have won more, far more championships, World Cup and Olympics, than the men's team, but they make... Squat, is that fair? Squat in comparison to what the men make. Just, just one illustration. When the women's team flies, they fly coach. When the men's team flies, they fly first class. Best team on the planet flies coach. Not the best team on the planet flies first class. You think they have a case? Yeah, I do. I do. But, but I think in a bit of over-exuberance, uh, maybe because of some of the feminist attitudes, I saw a shift in CIE training in the 80s. In that training, it was interesting. We were told that, uh, that men and women were not only equal, but pretty much identical. Identical, uh, no difference at all in the way we saw things, the way we processed things, the way we felt things, or the way we reacted to things. Now, that training might have actually swayed someone, a man or a woman, who had actually never, ever 
in their lives met someone from the opposite sex. But for those of us who had, we all knew it was crazy talk. By the time I left the agency, things had shifted again to where basically the training was reverting to men and women were different, but both were equally valuable and their talents and skills all needed to be brought out in equal, equal measure. So my point is this, what society, what our culture thinks a man is and thinks a man should be and what a woman is and what a woman should be has constantly been in flux over the last 40, 45 years. No wonder there's confusion then when we decide that God is basically an idiot and we go off on our own and decide how we're going to do stuff. Uh, maybe you notice this. Now that I'm a grandparent, uh, if, you're in a, if you're a parent or you're a grandparent and you've got little kids around, you, you find that there are things that pop up in your world that maybe you haven't had to deal with for maybe decades. I'm, yeah, I'm talking nursery rhymes. Nursery rhymes. One of my favorites. Uh, Rain a manger. No, what's, what's the one about the cradle? No, Rockabye baby. baby in the treetop. That's it. When the bell breaks, the cradle will rock. Oh, that's so sweet. When the bell breaks, the cradle will fall and down will fall. Baby cradle. It's a horror story. It's a horror story. How, who's going to go to sleep after that? Especially after last night's wind. One of other my favorites is this. What are little boys made of? Snips and snails and puppy dogs' tails. You know, you know what a snip is? You might know what a snip is? It's a leech. <laughs> so, it's a, so what are the boys made up? Leeches and slugs and puppy dogs' tails. What are little girls made up? Sugar and spice. Everything nice. I don't have a lot of, I don't have a lot of money. But if I did have some money, I would put it all on the table on this declaration. A man did not write that. <laughs> All my money's going on, some woman wrote that. Some woman who probably came out of a pretty horrible relationship with some guy, right? What are little boys made out of? What can I, what can I say? Leeches, slugs, and puppy dog tails, the little dung balls hanging off of them. That's what I'm thinking of. Girls, sugar, spice, everything nice. But here's what's, here's what's kind of funny about that nursery rhyme. It is trying to deal with things that our culture is still trying to deal with. How to correctly identify and define and unpack what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. I mean, is it just biology? You've got male reproductive organs and testosterone coursing through your body that, that makes you a man, yeah? Or are there supposed to be some attitudes and behaviors that accompany that? You've got female reproductive organs and estrogen coursing through your body that... that makes you a woman, no? Right. Or are there supposed to be behaviors and attitudes that go along with being that? Now, you and I might think, because we've been in church maybe all our lives, we, we might think, hey, th th this answer is really simple. This is not that complicated. But I'm telling you, if you look around, our culture is answering these questions very differently than they ever have in the history of mankind. And we're not answering them all that well. Let me just get to my, through my point here. I saw an article uh, written in the New Yorker magazine back in 2013. The article was entitled, What Does Manhood Mean in 2013? Heavily based on the research done by a firm called J. Walter Thompson, JWT for abbreviation. Uh, JWT, if you don't know who they are, they happen to be one of the world's most uh, big, largest, most influential marketing and advertising firms. Uh, they gave birth to things like this particular <laughs> billboard advertisement. 
They're, they're very, very influential. And they do a lot of research on kind of what's going on to help themselves and other firms that they work for figure out how to advertise and market best. Here's what they decided, here's what they found out in 2013. That, that not only is there no consensus in the marketplace as to what a man is or ought to be, but there's total confusion about how to even arrive at such a consensus. They say, man, if you look at, if you look at what, how masculinity is being perceived, it's like, it's like it's playing two and against types. I mean, it's just, it's all over the place and, and sort of nowhere. It's defined as, you know, growing a really impressive beard but eating a kale salad, knowing all the Super Bowl trivia but then being a super supportive, you know, uh, partner. And lest you think this is, you know, maybe all good and innocent, uh, that men are just simply getting in touch with their feminine side, their softer side. It's not that simple, nor is it that innocent. According to JWT's research, again, not a Christian firm at all, they go, look, you know, here's, here's millennial men. And they're, they're trying to figure out how to market to millennial men. They said, confusing. Millennial men in particular are okay with using concealers and lotions and poaching eggs. But they also are more frustrated than any generation of men in American history and knowing what it means to be a man or whether it's even okay to be a man. The article says it seems as if we've lost our history and what it means to be a man and a woman. So, so if a man doesn't know how to teach a little boy how to be a man and a woman does not know how to teach a little girl how to be a woman, there, there's a void that exists. And in that void, it's no great surprise, right? They were coming up with all kinds of ways to identify. And the article was talking about all the ways that you can now identify yourselves. For all of human history, it's been, well, male, female. But now it's male, female, and a wide variety of other. It can also be, the newest one to show up on the list, gender fluid. So before we go any further, I need to chat. Now, hopefully I'll have a better job chatting than this poor woman from Modern Family. For some of you, what we're going to cover today will seem absolutely absurd. But for others, maybe even someone in this room, it will hit on a real struggle, real life circumstances. It will hit on people that we love, people that we care about, people in our own family. So I just want us to be really careful that as we hear what we're talking about, we, don't, we, we guard our snickers, we guard our chuckles. Because it's not absurd for many people in our culture. We, we have to get this. If the church is to be anything in this world of ours, especially given what's going on, we've got to be a safe place for the gender confused. We've got to be a safe place for the sexually broken. The church is not safe for those people. Then we don't have a clue what it is we're preaching. We don't have a clue what it is that Jesus' power of resurrection means in a life of a person in terms of transformation. We, we are all broken we're all in need of grace. We're all in need of being saved. And to take any particular struggle that anybody in our culture is dealing with and put it outside the bounds of what the church can deal with or is comfortable dealing with is just wicked. It really is. We, we, we don't even believe our own message if that's where we land. So anyway, be careful that you take this seriously, uh, even if you think it's a little bit crazy. Uh, if it hasn't hit you yet, I guarantee you, it will. Friends, family, people you love, people you care about. Let me, just, let me just give you an example. I could give you many, but let me just give you one of this kind of gender confusion that's out there, gender fluidity. Uh, Mount Holyoke College. Anybody heard of that, Mount Holyoke College? Anybody go to there? I know you did not. It's an all-women's school up in Massachusetts. Uh, it's part of a series of schools, seven sisters' schools, actually seven universities, because when the Ivy League got started, 
all of the Ivy League schools were exclusively men-only universities. So someone got the great idea, let's create some universities where really brilliant women could also get trained. And they created these seven colleges, and Mount Holyoke was one of them. Um, it's a gorgeous place. I think I got some pictures. I mean, it, wow. You know, you're like, whoa, this is... Oh, this is a... They have a laurel parade every year for the graduating seniors. This is the picture, I think, the one from 2011, right? Here's how I'm bringing this up. In the 2014-2015 school year, academic year, Mount Holyoke rolled out some new admission standards to kind of show how progressive a university is. And all I want to do <laughs> is just read to you a little bit by, uh, from their uh, admissions standards document that's online. You can get on the, online and see it for yourself. Uh, let's just say that they're a little bit more complicated than John Stewart's hiring arrangements. All right, but here we go. Quote, Mount Holyoke College welcomes applications for our undergraduate program from any qualified student who is female or identifies as a woman. As a pioneer in higher education, Mount Holyoke remains committed to its historic mission of providing access to excellence for academically talented women, regardless of socioeconomic background. Right? The college values each student's development, both academically and personally, and recognizes that self-identity may change over time. End quote. Now, the school apparently knew that people were going to ask, okay, what are you, what are you saying? What, what do you mean? What, what's the practical application of all this? So they actually list out exactly what, what they mean. So again, we're going to read to you directly from the school's document. Quote, following academically qualified students can apply for admission consideration. Here are the categories. Biologically born female identifies as a woman. Biologically born female identifies as a man. Biologically born female identifies as other or they. Biologically born female does not identify either as a woman or a man. Biologically born male identifies as a woman. Biologically born male identifies as other or they when other or they could include woman. Biologically born with both male and female anatomy identifies as a woman. End quote. That's who accepted at Malheur College for Women. Two questions I come up with right out of the gate. Who cannot apply for admission to Mount Holyoke? Really simple. It's not anyone who's wearing a Michigan t-shirt. I don't know what's going on in this elementary school, but apparently, maybe it's in Lansing, Michigan, where Michigan State is. I don't know, but this kid is ostracized. That's not what we're talking about. In Mount Holyoke, is only one person who cannot apply for admission. Uh, biologically born male identifies as a male. That's it. Second question. What happens if you get accepted? You enroll, and you change your mind about who you are. What happens if you start off as a man identifying as a woman, but by your sophomore year, you're looking around and going, man, these... These chicks are pretty hot. I think I'm liking them. Uh, I'd like to change my identity. <laughs> Can you do that? Can you do that and stay or do you get kicked out? The school actually answers that question. Here's the quote. If a trans woman decides during her four years as a Mount Holyoke student to change her mind and chooses a male gender identity, will she need to withdraw from the college? What about biologically female students who come to identify themselves as male? Will they be removed? No. Once students are admitted, the college supports them regardless of their sex or gender identity, which is consistent with our current practice. Now, 
You just need to keep in mind that this is something that is playing out, not only just here or in University of Tennessee, which you saw in the video, but all over the world. Not just in colleges and universities, but you're, you're familiar, you guys heard of Fairfax County? For Fairfax County? Okay. It's playing out in middle schools, in elementary schools, high schools, in Fairfax County. So the question is, how then are we as Christians to kind of deal with this? How are we to step into this, those of us who believe in the word of God, and approach this issue? Well, we're to approach it just like God approaches us on our struggles, with a lot of compassion and a lot of just God's truth. Because what's going on in our lives, if we don't listen to God, is heartbreaking. What's going on in the lives of these folks who are confused is also heartbreaking. Let me just bring in to you the testimony of a fellow that's an expert, not a Christian, Dr. Paul McHugh. Not a Christian, not a member of a church. He's no Bible thumper whatsoever. He does have a very long title. He is the University Distinguished Service Professor of Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins. His extensive research shows this. Gender identity confusion is actually a psychiatric issue and is not something people who suffer from it are, should be left to decide on how to go about stuff on their own. Let me quote him. He says, I've witnessed a great deal of damage from sex reassignment. Children transformed from their male constitution into female roles suffered prolonged di distress and misery as they actually reverted back to their original uh, gender at, at birth. Now, when this whole issue first emerged, Johns Hopkins thought itself so progressive, it became, it, it became really aggressive in the idea of sex reassignment surgery. They started sex reassignment surgeries back in the 1970s. Now, what Dr. McHugh did is he went back and he interviewed and surveyed all those people that they had done those sex reassignment surgeries on. Sat in with them, interviewed them, did this procedure, did it fulfill you, did it solve what was, what was broken, did it fix things, did it satisfy you? Here's what he found out, and it was devastating. He was quoted in USA Today just a few months ago, and he really got worked over by the trans community for what he said. But what he said was this, virtually all the males who had had gender reassignment surgery done when they were kids, teens, now identify themselves as lesbians because they subsequently discovered that they weren't attracted to males at all but to women. And the research at Johns Hopkins, by the way, by the way, Johns Hopkins no longer does these surgeries. He, it's, the research at Johns Hopkins says that 80% of the kids and teenagers who struggle with gender identity confusion simply, if left completely alone, simply outgrow it. So if ever overzealous parents agree to sex reassignment surgery for their kids, what it creates, Dr. Paul McHugh says, is lifelong distress, lifelong fear, lifelong anxiety that is exponentially greater than what they actually suffered as kids or teens. Those who've had such surgery done are 20 times more likely than the general population to commit suicide. Why do I appreciate this point? Well, it's because he's not a Christian. He's not some elder to church. He doesn't go here. He's not even a Christian. And I don't know what you know about Johns Hopkins. Most, most, of, you, most of you probably do because you live in this area. It is not a school that is in the habit of hiring morons as head of their departments. They don't look for the guy who got C minuses to run their departments. He's a brilliant guy. And again, I say this before, if the church is to be anything, it is to be a safe place for people wrestling with this stuff or we don't understand who Christ actually is and what he's come to do. So, how do we enter into this? That was all point one, Paul, point two coming up. How do we start 
to figure out what it is that God's saying. And I think for that, we're going to have to spend two weeks really laying a foundation. This is part, kind of part one of a foundation to even look at this issue because we've got to be on solid ground before we actually launch into men and women specifically, which we'll do starting in work in, in, in uh, week three. But I'm going to start it real easy. If you get your Bibles or apps, first book of the Bible, first chapter of the first book of the Bible, first verse of the first chapter of the first verse of the first book of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. Here's what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're just going to kind of take this phrase, this sentence apart and kind of look at it and see what it says about how we, how we begin to start looking at this whole issue. In the beginning. Stop there. Maybe from overhearing this over and over and over again, you're, you're not aware of just how difficult that little phrase is in terms of our understanding what it's saying. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what's, what's difficult for, uh, for, for us about that. We are finite beings, right? We live 80, 90 years, sometimes less. We, we, are, we have a hard time thinking about how to operate in anything that doesn't involve time. Parameters of time work everything. We're driven by it. What time does church start? What time is it going to be over? When are we meeting for lunch? When are we getting out? When does this happen? What time do I have to be at work? Uh, what time did you, when did you graduate? How old are your kids? When did you get married? I mean, all that's stuff, questions related to time. It's framed by the notion. It's hard for us to actually think about stuff in, in a way that does not include something related to time. But this little phrase, in the beginning, actually tells us something. That there was something that existed before time. Something that jump-started the whole concept of time. Yeah, we're driven by time. We're, it dictates us. But this text says that there was actually something that existed before that. And we see it in the next word. In the beginning, God. Okay, now we know that there was something, and what it was was God before the beginning. In the beginning, it was God, according to the Bible. God's the only thing, the only object, the only person which appears to have no beginning. He existed before there was a beginning. He simply caused the beginning to begin. You see that? Then we see what God did. In the beginning, God created. God is now defined as the primary mover in everything that you and I see and much of the universe we don't. Everything that is owes its existence to God, finds its origins in God, finds its purpose, its meaning, its reality in God. And don't move too quickly off this concept because it tells us something about just how incredibly wealthy this God is. And maybe, maybe, maybe you don't see that, but here, 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 let me try to explain to you. What do I have in my hand right now? What do I have in my hand right now? What? See, yeah, nothing. It was, you thought it was a trick question, right? I, I was going to get you to say nothing. I'm going to pull out a possum or something, right? It's scared you to death. No. Nothing. What if I could take this nothing that's in my hand right now and make anything I wanted out of the nothing in my hand? And as much as I wanted of that from the nothing in my hand, how wealthy would I be? <laughs> Incredibly wealthy, right? There's nothing I could not have, nothing I could not have in, in ample supply. That's how immensely wealthy is. He spoke and created things that did not. And then the sentence goes on from there. He created the heavens. Now we see in addition to uh, time, we're seeing space emerge, expanse of the universe. How much power does it create to create a universe that appears to have no end, that's infinite? 
pretty powerful. Yeah. See, remember, when you and I read the Bible and we come across the words like heavens, the people who are writing this, they got inspired to write scriptures, had no clue of the expanse of the universe. They looked up and saw stars, but I mean, they, they didn't see other galaxies. But they're writing the words that God told them, and the God who told them to write this stuff did understand that expanse. So it gets me into crazy things where they're writing stuff they don't even understand. For example, in Job 26, one of my favorite verses, it says this, Behold these, and it's referring to these, all the things that God made, all the universe. It says, these are but the outskirts of God's ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand? In other words, everything that we are increasingly and learning about the, about the universe out there, and frankly, the universe that exists within a single human cell down here. The overwhelmingness of the universe as we are discovering it is only but the tip, if you will, uh, of the hem, maybe, of the garment that God is wearing. Not even his whole garment. It's just, it's just a brief little glimpse of who this God is. We're only seeing the glimpse, tiniest bit of what God really is. He's so much more than everything that he's actually made. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and, and you add in the earth, and it's kind of funny because earth, a little orb in a not-too-significant galaxy, one of the lesser galaxies on, on the earth, on the, on the universe. He creates on this little solar system, on this little planet, that little rock, which the greatest drama in the history of the universe is going to play out with men and women made in his image. More on that next week. But so far we have in this verse a God who exists before time. He creates time. He creates space. He creates mass. And now you have a dream come true for philosophers and theologians and scientists because you've got mass, time, space, things that allow you to start thinking about origins and thinking about purpose and thinking about design. You've got math and science, all that stuff comes out. So what I want to do in the time I have left is just kind of spend a little bit of moments on, on those things. What are we? Origins. Why are we? Purpose, which will lead us into design. Start with origin. Who are we? We know now from this first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know we are created by a creator. We did not used to be something else and now we're this. And it's going to sting a little bit, but because we didn't make ourselves, it also means this. We are not the center of everything. God is. You and I are not the point of it all. We'd like to be the point. We'd like to think that we ought to be the point. Guys, you have a job, you slog through rush hour traffic to get to work, right? You work all day fighting off the demons, fighting off the dragons, right? Killing, killing giants. You slog through rush hour traffic to get home. When you get home with the wife and kids, you'd like them to think that you're the point, right? But if you think that way, it doesn't go very well for you because there's been stuff going on at work, right? Or it's at, at home as well. But if you come in the door not thinking that you're the point of the universe, guess what? Things go a lot better if you're a lot more sensitive to those other people in the house, not thinking that you're the point, right? We are created. And because we're created, we are not the main point. How about our purpose? Why are we here? Again, a fuller answer in more detail in terms of men and women in the weeks to come, but here's what I want to say now. Because we are created by a creator, we are not floating 
aimlessly or purposelessly in the cosmos with no plan or purpose. Because we have a creator, this creator created us with a purpose in mind. But I think there are other things we can extract from this one little sentence, things that are, I would think are man-made ideas that this sentence proves not to be true. How about the concept of dualism? Philosophy majors will know what this is. It's the idea that in the universe there's these two competing forces. You see it in movies all the time. Two competing forces, good or evil or whatever, and they're battling it out, and, and nobody really knows who's going to win. But based on the first sentence of the Bible, that can't possibly be true. There is no force that's a competitor with God. He created everything that is that's not him. There's no power beyond him. You, you, as fun as the movies are where there's somebody that's uh, demon-possessed, you know, exorcist or whatever, and they call the priest in, you know that priest is going to get messed up, right? That's just the way it goes for the priests who get, messed, who get called into those actions in, in movies. Uh, but it's, it's a fun movie, but it's, it's not based on reality. God has no equal. Polytheism can't be true. Why? Because there's only one God. There's not many gods. God spoke and created. Pantheism can't be true. Pantheism is this weird thing um, where everything that you see, everything in the universe, all material stuff, everything, if you put it all together, it basically is the moral equivalent of God. God is basically everything that is. But we see in Genesis 1-1 that God is above. He's beyond everything that is. He called everything that is into being. So he can't possibly be just the sum of what the stuff is he's made. He's more. If you watch the movie Avatar, anybody seen the movie Avatar? You saw a good dose of pantheism. Remember where they, they put their ponytails and they attach them to the roots of the tree of souls and you know, they become one with the universe and God is, I mean, it's, they're becoming one with everything, right? We know that simply can't be true because God is the creator of everything. He is not everything he told everything that is to be. You want an example of a pantheist? The great Carl Sagan, a brilliant astrophysicist. Uh, he looked at the universe and he thought it ought to, it ought to engender in us reverence and awe. And, and he was right. It, it's a, it, it should generate reverence and awe. I mean, send me a link to 30 latest uh, pictures from the Hubble telescope and I'm all in. The, the universe is, is incredible. It's magnificent. It should produce reverence at all. The, where Carl and I would disagree is in what it should produce reverence for. If there is a creator of it, then the reverence and awe we feel as we look at the universe should flow to the creator. How magnificent is the universe? Great, but how magnificent must be the creator of it if he did, in fact, create it? But I do think one of the reasons that pantheism kind of has a drawing out there is because it, it, it sort of acknowledges something I think is actually true, that there appears to be in the universe some synergy. There appears to be some design. There appear to be things that work together. You know, I, like I think I had this slide up here. So not everything is, is designed well. Like here, here's galoshes. It is, I'd say this is the poor design. If it, it, wait, galoshes, you guys say that out here? Yeah. You do? Okay. Sometimes uh, Midwest terminology enters into my lexicon. So, but if it, these are called galoshes, then we're good. We're all good. Bad design. See, but then the universe, if you, if scientists look at it, they go, man, it appears to have, to make some sense. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, talked about, sort of looked at, looked at kind of the human, if you will, the human machine. And he was talking about the design, and, and he says, these things that God tells us to do, these moral codes, they appear to be kind of like, you know, designed like, to help the human machine work well. 
We think sometimes that God's moral codes are, are to keep us from having a good time and to interfere with all of our fun. But his, his pitch was, these things that God says are actually, if you think of the human, human beings being a machine, it helps keep friction and, and breakdowns from occurring. So apply that to us, you know? If you're trying to uh, learn how to work a power saw or a lawnmower or drive a car or maybe a sewing machine, You'll often have an instructor sitting there as you're trying to do your thing going, okay, uh, that's not the right way to do it. Do it this way. You're going to cut your toes off. You're going you're to staple your fingers to the material. You're, you're going you know, to cut your leg off or something. Because they say, you see, there's a, see, there's a way that, that as you're trying to operate that machine that seems right to you, but the instructor who knows about how that thing was designed to work can, can sort of tell you, no, don't do it that way. You're going to hurt it. You're going to break the machine. You're going to break yourself. Uh, what seems right to us turns out to be wrong, Right? So apply that to us. We have been created and thought through by this creator. We're not mannequins. There's a good and a right and a, and a, and a beautiful design for the way he's made us. When we use the, if you will, the machinery of our humanity well, things go better. The, the Bible would say it this way. There is a way that seems right to a man or a woman. But its end is the way of death. That's in Proverbs. Now that's a scary verse. I don't know if you, don't know, if you know that. That's it's scary. I mean, it means that you're looking at something and it seems like this is exactly the right thing you should do. This is exactly the right thing you should think. This is exactly the right way to operate. I mean, I'm actually trying my best to do what is best. But God, the creator, is sitting there going, no, 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 no. You got it all wrong. I designed this thing that you're trying to operate here. It is not going to work well if you do that. Conversely, when you operate the human machine the way God ordained it, it goes a lot better. Psalm 16 says this, God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. You get what that's saying relevant to this thing? Hey, do you want to know what manhood is? God says, oh, let me, let me share with you the path of life on that. You want to know what womanhood is. God's saying, oh, let me, let me share with you the path of life on that so you don't destroy the machine. You want to know about money? Oh, I got some, I got, I know, I designed money. Let me tell you how that's supposed to function so that things work well. You know what, you know what about marriage? I got that covered too. I designed that. I thought that idea. Let me tell you how it's supposed to work. Children, here's the path of life in dealing with children. Because in the end of the day, God alone, as the creator and the designer is the only one who can rightly and justly say this is what little boys are made of and this is what little girls are made of and in case we think that God's original purpose and the origins and the design for us have been you know, outgrown by us because we have evolved to some new state because we have progressed so far. Here's this out of James. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God does not change. He's not changed his mind. He's not said, you know, I thought I had a good idea of the design, but you know, I think I've, I think I've learned some things as I've watched you guys operate. You've taught me some things, and we will operate this way now. Why would God never changing be good for you and me? Specifically on the topic of manhood and womanhood. 
Why is it good that God doesn't change? Here's an illustration. Before there were GPSs, before there were iPhones, before there were maps that we could unfold but never knew how to fold back that helped us direct our paths, people would find the North Star and they would find the North Star and they'd use it to direct their paths. Why? Because the North Star, no matter where you were, it always appeared to be in exactly the same spot, a fixed point. Without a fixed point, you don't know where you are nor do you know where you're going. So when it comes to this series or really any topic where our culture is colliding with Scripture, we've got to go to God as our North Star. Why? Because he doesn't change. He is the fixed point. So I just encourage you to do this. Look around this week. Watch the newspapers, the news. I would argue this. Isn't progress a strange word to use to describe what is happening in our world? Progress? Really? It seems to me just watching the news, it's more violent than ever. It's more confusing than ever. It's more damaged than ever. It seems more broken than ever. We've even got these old diseases we thought we had nuked coming back and ravaging people in third world countries again. Progress? What a joke. So we need to keep our eyes on God, the North Star, the fixed point, because he doesn't change. That's where our hope is. Now, I will tell you, as we get into this uh, series, there are going to be some things I think that the word of God is going to... uh, it's going, to, it's going to arouse some irritation because God's going to call men into things that men would rather not be and do. But he's created us. He's designed us. So we got to listen. He's going to call women into some things that they're not going to be as comfortable with either. But listen, what loving parent always says yes to their kids, whatever they want? Any, any, any parent that does that just creates a little sociopathic monsters, right? If you just say yes to everything that they want. So here's where we're going. We've got to believe that God is good, that he is a creator, that he's a fixed point, that he doesn't change, and he's smart. He's smart. We're going to let him instruct us as we get into this series. We're going to build another fact, another layer of the foundation next week. We're looking at God's making us in his image. We'll talk about what that means. And then we'll sort of unleash the whole thing about men and women. But I just want us to be prepared to let God instruct us and prepared to marvel at this incredible design that he has made for men and women, not just to function, but to flourish. Let's pray. God, we love you. We know we're entering dangerous turf here. Dangerous turf because what you think and what we think, even on this topic, is so different than what the world thinks. Pray you would give us open minds to hear that we would be changed, that we would actually live with joy evermore that you promise. Help us to understand you, how you think, and what you think about us as we get into this. In Christ's name, amen.